Well, I always eat I, when I get Chinese food. If I get lo mein, I always eat that with chopsticks. So why couldn't I just eat spaghetti with chopsticks too? <laughs> All right. Something okay. else I wonder about is so rice. Chinese eat with chopsticks typically, but we know that rice um, is also indigenous to India. But Indians don't use chopsticks, so how do they eat their rice? Uh, you use uh, with spoon right or hand. a piece of flatbread or your right hand. Uh, it, it, Indian places today give you silverware that I've been to typically, although there's also bread. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. yeah, you you eat it with bread, or you like roll up a roll up your rice with your curry into a ball in your hand, and you can just eat it with your hand. Huh. Yeah, the real the real. That's the real traditional way to, to go do it. out for an Indian takeaway and just eat it with your hand. Well, I mean, if you go if you go back far enough, um, eating with your hand is the traditional way in every culture. I would think, pretty much. All right. So, so India didn't develop any kind of special rice tool. Spoons are great, and bread works really well. Like, what more uh, do you need? I don't know. Um, we're only doing one episode today. All right. Mike needs to go stab people, right? <laughs> no, that that's Sundays. I need to, ah, um, okay. yeah, actually do something with my week. All right, here we go. Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Smoridge, and joining us are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. This is episode 14, where we'll be discussing line 49 of the Zettel, which is starting the Twerhouse section. It's been a couple of weeks since we last recorded an episode, so what have we been up to since then? Johanna? Um, I haven't been up to a lot, at least not humor-wise. It's been a bit pretty uh, tough two weeks regarding work and university. But I found some time to, to look at Hans Miedl, or not the fencing master Hans Miedl, but the Hans Miedl uh, treaties. And I took a closer look at that funny sign at the, I think, first or second page of the treaties. Um, it's like a runic symbol. And I've been doing some research and I found out that in, in Germany and in more northern parts of Europe, like Scandinavia, um, people used such symbols um, called Hausmarken, which would be a house mark, um, to indicate their property. So their houses, their boats, whatever. And I found a few of them that look quite similar, but I haven't found like the one. But I'd love to find out um, whose mark that could have been. That's, yeah. that's really cool. So it's almost like a, a little rune, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So, it, yeah, you can have a look at it. It's, it looks pretty much like a rune. And all house marks, or most house marks, look pretty similar. So it's kind of difficult to find out um, whose exactly it was, but I'll try, I'll try my best. That's really interesting. Cool. I, I sort of, I always thought that was a Christian symbol. Oh yeah, um, I did so too. <laughs> it looks a lot like a Kitao row. The other crazy idea I've seen for it is that it's some sort of um, uh, like symbolic representation of the five cups. I think Jens Kleinau wrote an article about that idea once. I feel Ooh. like he was tongue in cheek about that, but... It's Jens, you can never really tell. Exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> but if it's a house mark, I would love to know that because that might open some interesting history to us. Yeah. About why this book exists. So the cool. X is the Zorn How and the Shield How, and the vertical line is the Scheidel How, and the horizontal line is the Tver How, and the curved lines are the Crump How? Yes, yeah. exactly. I Okay. <laughs> and what kind of people would have had these house marks? Rich people, poor people? Um, both, I'd say. So um, we can find it for 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 poorer people, like on on, on fishermen's boats and fishermen's houses. Um, but also, rich families had them. So, for example, the Fuggers, who were like the uh, most famous merchant family in in Germany had one and they later on um, implemented them on their coats of arms. Cool. So so both. But I, I, as I said, I'm not sure yet um, whose it is, but I'd love to find out. Sweet. Thank you very much. Were the Fuggers the ones who currently owned Venezuela? Sorry, what, what did you say? Were the Fuggers the family that briefly owned Venezuela after oh, the I, king of uh, Portugal defaulted on a loan? I really don't know. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, that wouldn't surprise me at all. It was one of the big merchants, but I, I think it might have been actually the other one that compared, competed with the Fuggers. I don't remember. It's a pretty funny story, though. Okay. Is this like um, Pepsi owning the one of the biggest navies in the world? Uh, I, I don't know, but essentially they were merchants, uh, but also moneylenders, and the king of Portugal needed a loan to fight a war. So he put up Venezuela as collateral and then defaulted on the loan. So they went as far as, so, that, so then they legally transferred to whichever family it was. And they went as far as sending an expedition out to investigate their new land and seeing what was profitable there. But there were problems with the, with the natives and I think also with disease. And most of them died on the expedition. And the few that came back said, this is not worth it. So they sold it again. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that cool. banking banks can sometimes end up with strange property when they do business <laughs> like that. Awesome. What have you been up to in the last couple of weeks, Michael? Uh, when did we last record? Um, I've been mostly doing Wicked Hour work for the past few weeks. So I've been working on restore on updating articles to the new page format where the transcriptions are encoded into the scans instead of being listed separately. And I've for the past week or week and a half, I've been doing Talhofer and completely updating and revising all of those pages. There's a lot of copies of Talhofer. Yeah, and weren't copies of Talhofer being made up until like the Victorian period? The, there were two copies from the 1820s, manuscript copies, that were hand, still apparently hand-copied from two manuscripts that are in Germany now. Um, and they're both at held at Munich. And then in the late 19th century, the first facsimiles of Talhofer appear, and there were more in the 20th century and 21st. So there have been copies of Talhofer made every single century since Talhofer was alive, if you stacked everything up. So People he's never been out of print. For some reason. What'd you say? He's never been out of print. No, yeah, so bizarre, because you know these things have no practical value, it may be a couple centuries after his death, but they're still like... I guess love for their pretty pictures. Well, it was successful. Possibly the famous of the German fencing masters. How about you, Steve? What have you been up to? 
I've been doing a couple different things. I have been interested in fencing coaching. So I've been reading up on that a little bit and also watching some videos online and thinking about ideas for how uh, individual lessons should go down. So kind of trying to make drills and things and work different, I guess, responses and types of things like that. Um, so that's one thing. I was looking more about the anatomy of uh, passing steps and how to make uh, passing step attacks and different actions with them work. And I, I was working on that kind of stuff before, and I picked it back up a little bit and I'm trying to categorize all the different ideas behind them. And I also watched a bunch of videos of high-level fencers or high-level um, longsword fencers who use passing steps and tried to kind of identify how they use them, which was very interesting because people have a lot of different ways. Individuals have, have their own way of using passing steps, and they can all make them work, and they can all make them work differently. So that's definitely something to note. And I don't think most of that stuff has really been kind of systematized or defined yet. So cool. if, we, if we can get some kind of uh, definitions for those going and people can consciously train all of them, I think we can improve fencing as a whole, I hope. So this is doing a an in-depth breakdown a little bit like, um, is it to rule humor? I know Magic no. Tomorrow did some stuff on the mechanics of passing steps in the Oberhow. Yeah. Yeah, Project House book, that's what I'm thinking yeah. of, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's Magic. Yeah, Talaga, um, he, he, Project House book, they, they put out a video about studies, like a study of a passing step. And in that, he, he mostly talks about one style, which, which we've been calling the ballistic or flesh style, which is pretty much how you can attack with a passing step on the, in the first fencing action. So the, the fast, the fastest and pretty much most successful or most likely to be successful way of uh, doing a simple attack, which simple attack, meaning um, an attack with, with no preparation or no previous blade action, but there are other ways and, you know, other people make them work either with a preparation or not. So, yeah. So, winding back the conversation a little bit to before, you were talking about coaching methods from fencing, Olympic yes. fencing. You already fence Epe, is that right? I wouldn't say that. I, I have <laughs> fenced Epe. I, I did it in college, which was like 10 years ago now. Yeah. So, cool. What what were you expecting when you started to look at individual coach lessons and what did you find? Well, I mostly started looking at the videos because I finished the book uh, Understanded, Understanding Fencing by uh, Zbigniew Tchaikovsky. Wow. And yeah, it's, it, it's, it, it was dense and I was proud of myself for finishing it. But he talks a, a lot about like different coaching ideas and, and, um, you know, how you should do drills and stuff. 
but I was having trouble picturing a lot of it. So that's really why I started looking up uh, videos. And I mean, it kind of met my expectations. Like the coach is kind of setting up different situations for what they're trying to teach and trying to make the situation more realistic. And, you know, hopefully it works, <laughs> I guess. Brilliant. Well, just, I mean, I, sorry. Nah, just moving you on. That's all, Steve. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was just going to yeah. say quickly, if you want a follow-on recommendation from Understanding Fencing, I recommend uh, The Mental Preparation of Fencers and Others by Adler Kugler. Uh, okay. Although it is even more dense and dry, if that was possible. <laughs> wow. I, I don't know if I'll be able to get through it. <laughs> was it originally written in English? Like, at least with Understanding Fencing, you can say it's a translation. No, it's originally English. Uh, but it's Great. got some really interesting stuff stuff about like mental habit building and preparation, mental preparation, like understanding and self-diagnosing your fencing problems, mindset, that sort of thing, hmm. um, and ways to coach and help people build those techniques. Cool. Which leads us on. T, what have you been up to in the last couple of weeks? Finding more cocktails? Yes, I am drinking a Manhattan this week, which is not in any way fencing related, sadly. But nothing particularly much for fencing. I'm still writing a occasional series of short articles about uh, coaching and teaching. Um, these are probably going to turn into a website at some point or a blog or something. But for now, they're just going on Facebook. So go find the HEMA Club Organizers World Domination Facebook group if you are interested in that sort of stuff. And that's pretty much it. I'm kind of trying to spend some time sharing out knowledge that's useful for structuring classes efficiently and so on. because. With these quarantine times, lots of clubs have had to interrupt their normal teaching for a while anyway, um, which can potentially be a good time to rethink about how we do stuff as teachers or instructors. Um, so I'm trying to get some of that information out there before everyone starts back up. Cool. Uh, what have I been up to in the last few weeks? I did like a cross-country orienteering race, which was cardio, and I wouldn't recommend it. Sounds more <laughs> martial than fencing. Yeah, it was it was actually a lot of fun. Like, run run for fifteen minutes and then have a pub geography quiz, match the countries to the outlines, and then run for another ten fifteen minutes and do another activity. Turns out that like Wellington boots, gum boots are really hard to throw. And then I've done a little bit of fencing because we don't have any more corona here. It's all right for some. <laughs> yeah, I have. And, and, been I've been experimenting with different types of face covering underneath the mask for fencing, which sucks. But it sucks to do because you don't get any oxygen and you're gasping for air. But we got to do it. Aren't you? Aren't you already wearing a mask? Ha! Huh. Yeah, <laughs> but fencing masks yeah. don't stop any air flow at all. <laughs> That's their yeah. their purpose is to not. <laughs> Do that. <laughs> Fencing masks definitely stop airflow, just not very no. much. But yeah, their their purpose is to stop as little airflow as possible while still being protective. Just get one of those old style ones with the black sand face. Uh, you can reuse idea. it for um uh wax bullet pistol dueling as well. <laughs> I'll get right on that. Alright. Before this becomes a wax bullet pistol dueling <laughs> podcast, <laughs> let's move on to the text. Uh, so we're doing line line 49, isn't it? Yeah, line 49. Uh, Johanna, could you give us that couplet in the original German? Mm, yes. If 
I can find it. Oh, there it is. Okay. It's Tvea benimmt, was vom Tag her kimmt. Thank you very much. And Steve, could you give us Harry's translation? Whatever blow from high he make, the cut named Tvea will soundly take. Cool. Um, it's short enough that I should probably go through a like um, amalgamation of the glosses for this section, shouldn't I? Yes. I just posted it on the channel. Thank you very much, Michael. Here we go. The cross takes whatever comes from the day. Gloss. Remember, the cross stroke counters the guard from the day, and all strokes which come hewing from the day above, and drive the cross stroke like this. When you, when you approach him with your onset, if he stands against you and holds his sword with arms outstretched over himself, high over his head in the guard, and waits on you, then notice when you come near to him, then set your left foot forward and hold your sword with the flat on your right shoulder. If he steps towards you and threatens to strike you from above, then come before him with your stroke, and leap your right foot well to your right side against him, and in the leap, turn your sword with the hilt before your head so that your thumb comes underneath, and strike him against the left side of his head with your short edge. Or, if he comes before with his stroke down from you, from above, ear to you, then leap from the stroke with your right foot well on your right side, with the displacement described before, so that you catch his stroke on your hilt, and strike him with the cross on the left side of his head. Whew. That is, to be clear, strike him with the cross as in with the crossing cut, not with the cross of your sword. Yeah. Right, so, I would say hilt. Or guard. So, f first of it, the zwerch how? <laughs> zwerch. Uh, yeah, zwerch, I believe, is what I've said. The Right, with church. Yeah, Hannah. <laughs> how how would you describe how how would you pronounce this cut? Um, depends. So <laughs> there are different ways of <laughs> of spelling it. So I've seen Tavia um in sort of on Danzig, for example. Um I've seen Tavia and I've seen Tverch. So with my <laughs> a linguistic knowledge, I'd say that Tver is the older, uh, the older variation, and Tver or Tverch are the newer ones. I, I'd say whatever is easier for you to pronounce. <laughs> um, the, so, the... so for English-speaking listeners, Tver how is easier to say, probably. <laughs> yeah, probably because. Um, Tver is is kind of difficult for for German speakers as well because we don't have the combination of T and W or, or T and V um, in German at all. So yeah. um, all 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 sounds or all words that had the sounds um, T and V or TV, um in the German language shifted towards TV, um in in time. So we had a few words where we used TV, but they all kind of changed to tzber. Um It's still seen in, for example, hmm, the English number two, <laughs> which is spelled T-W-O. Um, it's zwei um, in German. Um, but it, yes! <laughs> but it was um, tva in, in Old English and probably tvei in Proto-Germanic. But now it's zwei, so... <laughs> yeah, some sources you can still see it. They spell like... Like T W uh, T W O, 
for or something like that for German. Like they use a T in oh. the, in in some of the sources. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I I wouldn't for English speakers. I would say just totally ignore the ch if there is. If you're looking at a version of the word uh, "tsva" that has a has a ch, don't even try to pronounce that. <laughs> right. The my understanding is the ch is just sort of there because they don't like the conjunction of "tsverhau," so the ch makes it a little bit harder. "Tsverhau" gives you a little bit of a, and that's just a dialectic thing that became standardized. Maybe. Um, but lots of words that end in "r" like that would get a ch if they were being made into a compound word. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, German speakers usually say "zwerchau" uh, for for the action. So with the ch at the end of the word, so "zwerchau." But but since we're also bad at pronouncing the German z, I said I would say English speakers should stick with the t. Yeah, yeah. We can pronounce t v e r pretty okay. So the takeaway from this podcast is to ignore Joachim Mayer. And stick <laughs> pseudo von Dante. It just causes problems. Do kendo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, butcher Japanese instead. What do the Japanese call the Tverhau, Steve? Um, <laughs> they call it being kicked out of the tournament because you're not allowed to do it. <laughs> really? Lame. Yeah. All right. Um, Actually, how, you're, how, you're allowed. It's just frowned upon, and your opponent's going to hate you because you probably blew out their <laughs> drum. Your drum. <laughs> nice. Um, now that we've learned how to mispronounce Tver, how, <laughs> how, how would we translate it? So, Michael Chilister, what do you think about thwart cut? So, thwart is interesting. It's become standard HEMA parlance. Um, but it's not actually a good translation. I know that's what you wanted me to say. Um, the reason why it became standard is because Jeffrey Forgang used it in his Meyer translation, and they've kind of spawned a whole expectation if that's what the word is pronounced. And I think also because it kind of sounds like Tver, so people like it, people love cognates. Um, but the problem is that thwart, as we understand it in 21st century English, is not the thwart that Jeffrey meant to invoke. Thwart is an old word that means across. Well, a thwart means across um, or crosswise or a slant. It means a couple of things like that, and it's a, a nautical term, among other things. Um, yeah, that's used to indicate something that's crossing the direction of your travel um, is a thwart. But when we hear it, we think thwart like oppose, um, thwart as a verb instead of as an adverb. Um, like, and like, I'm going to. Like, I'm going to thwart your plans. Yeah, and that, I believe, is a case of convergent evolution in the language. It might not even have the same root, although I don't remember what, what I found when I looked into that. Uh, but that's not what he meant to say, and that's what everyone hears. Um, so I think sticking to what the word actually means, which is cross or across or crosswise or any, any kind of word that has that meaning um, is better than going with thwart because at least it will tell you vaguely what the word means and you won't go making up your own folk etymologies i think athwart would be okay but that's really awkward to say athwart you and also then you have to go look it up or you have to define it so it's basically it's not a word anyone uses it's a problem with that yeah I'm, I'm trying to remember what i went with i think i went with across because 
it makes clear that the the meanings perpendicular and in my translations i like to i like to not treat these words as special so i usually just say cut across or strike across and let people figure out for themselves that this is the tverhau and not but i mean it's not like there's anywhere else where it tells you to strike across that isn't using the word tver um so that's that's my preferred translation or the cross strike if we have to label it as something it's sort of the verbal phrase strike across pleases me how about you, Steve? What what did you go with? Well, I have lately been going with uh, lateral. I previously went with thwart, but Michael convinced me. His, his argument was very convincing, so I stopped using it. And now I'm using lateral. And the reason that I go with that is because I feel like it still gets that idea of, because, you know, you have, what is it? Like, you have horizontal and you have lateral. And the lateral like goes with thwart of the of the horizontal, and also in you know in in combat sports and you know sports in general, like saying you're going to do a lateral is like it, it is it's an easy thing to say. You know what I mean? It's it's um it's understandable that there would be a cut with that name or a move with that name. The the other option would be transverse. <laughs> Oh, Which that's is a, what that's a huge mouthful. Yeah, but that's what Paulus Hector calls it, I believe. Ictus transversus. Oh. It's um, not like any longer to say than lateral is. Lateral transverse. Yeah. Same number yeah, of syllables. Maybe. That has the benefit that you're never ever going to use that word except when describing this cut. That's true. So there's that. I, yeah. I, I don't know any other word you'd translate as lateral though. But I do many... I do know other words that you might translate as cross though. Yeah, that's the downside is that we, we say hit with a cross and we're talking about like the, the donor schlag or something, even though what we mean is hit with the quillen, but yeah, that's a potential a point of confusion, I admit. A bit of me wonders, if, if lateral became the norm, then how long before people go, yeah, it's the lateral here, because you're hitting them in the lats. <laughs> <laughs> and it would become the lat view, obviously, because lateral is too long. So if we can say the one that I hate the most that should never ever be used again is the horizontal cut, because what? it's not only misleading but it's also not even a like a a good translation. It neither describes the cut nor describe nor rep nor represents the word fair, but it was used by a couple translators in the early two thousands, and still sticks around. I think Lindholm's translation say horizontal. What about dwarf you? Is it? Do you think I was about to say dwarf you? Dwarf you is definitely yeah, the best translation. I love it. <laughs> All right, we've had a vote. Dwarf you win. <laughs> yeah, Johanna, what was the dwarf you re re um, reference? It references um, Zwerg. Yeah, it it could work. So <laughs> um, there there are some instances where where the word Zwerg was being used in the early New High German era, and it meant dwarf. So it could work, but I I really don't think so. <laughs> And that's Zwerg with a G at the end, I believe. It's it's a great um, translation because it's a really good cut for someone who's shorter than their opponent. It is. So and, you know, know, bending your knees and making yourself shorter is a good way to land it sometimes. Yeah, yeah exactly. I've seen people say that is that, you know, you're supposed to bend way down and go low, and that's why it's a dwarf you. I, I don't believe that's real, but it is kind of not untrue. It's definitely not real.
it, it, it is a thing that you do, so who knows? Well, maybe. <laughs> um, all right. So now that we've muddied the waters on that question, with the the fair how the dwarf you no wait the <laughs> the the across cut what is the kind of gross motor action being described um team gonna pick on you for this one um so the way i actually normally teach this cut to people when i'm teaching it to them for the first time is i teach them basically how to do a boxing hook uh which is not super similar but it has some of the same ideas so you have this idea it's a relatively short action it's not extended out it's quite shortened you want the hands to be over the head to cover you um so you're hiding under your cross guard under your hilt this is why you need to get low if you're tall um and then you just drive it pretty much completely with a very strong turn of the body there's some pictures in talhofer which i'm sure we can link in the description where he's turning practically to face away from the other guy while doing things which could well be fair house so that kind of idea is how i normally teach it uh hands go above the head body turns very, very strongly uh, completely through, and the sword stays kind of locked into this structure from the, the hands and the, the hands and the shoulders up above the head uh, so, to go into the target. Go on. So, to you, what would you say is the common interpretation of this one? Or is it like you were saying? Um, I think probably the common interpretation is relatively more extended. The version I'd see... T taught a lot and which i normally taught for a while was pretty much that you start out by you essentially cut into a left ox kind of position so you you take your sword and like you turn the sword over and you push it up and you twist your body and you punch your arms out and you end up in a kind of oxy position personally i find that's a weaker structure and it's more prone to certain types of failure so i prefer something which is closer to the body um, and more centered over the axis of rotation in the center of the body it's funny because people who teach it with that kind of extension rarely actually fence that way. Or they, they'll do it for the first one, and then when they cut around, they're shortened again. And they sh and they do the Dutch windmill, they stay short. Yeah. The thing which actually really changed my opinion on this was talking with Carl Bolli at uh, WMAW a few years back. And he taught me a way to power it um, for cutting purposes, where you keep it very closely connected to the body, and you don't... There's a common idea of like push-pulling, where you'll like you'll push one hand forward and you pull the other hand backwards. And if you do this with something like the tear, you'll generally fold up your wrists in weird ways and break your ability to um, transfer power to the sword. But instead, what he had me do was imagine kind of holding the sword over my head and pulling the pommel off the sword. So the two hands are pulling along the length of the grip, um, and that locks the structure of your arms and body in place in a very firm way that lets you resist a huge amount of force and drive all of the power from your your core into the cut very easily. Cool. Yeah, I got that interpretation from either Carl or Jake, and I've been working on that, but I can't seem to quite make it work against a mat these days. But I like it a lot. The trick for a mat is just to keep turning like further than you th possibly think you ever need to. Turn the heaps. The sword, the sword is basically, in contrast to a, a normal cut, where the sword is sort of perpendicular to the line of your shoulders, in a tvair with these mechanics, the, the sword is basically parallel to the line of your shoulders. So you have to turn so far to get it through the target that your shoulders are facing out the other side of it, and you're starting to turn your back on the target. Yeah. So the, the way that I normally teach this is I get tying back to the last episode that we recorded. Wow. Is to get people to do the crump pal from shrankut to shrankut. And then I get them to raise it above their head so that they look like a helicopter. 
so that they've got an idea of the planes that it can move through. And then I get them to start turning their their torso and their hips and then eventually taking a step rather than starting in Vomtag and getting them to push out from it. How about you, Steve? Well, I guess we're getting into... I mean, this would, this would, my interpretation would be getting into how, like, we make this work in sparring. And, you know, the, what, what is this, what is this meant to accomplish? Because my interpretation is basically that it is not meant to, like, when you're, especially when you're going up against a cut, doing it as a counterattack, I don't think it's meant to really be a strong hit but mostly a parry and then your follow-up techniques are what's what's most important so i kind of i have you you know start in shoulder from tog and then shoot your arms over to the left side and think about getting the strong of your sword into the middle of your body or into the path of your opponent's cut as soon as possible because if you're cutting around, then what's going to happen is you're going to get hit in the hands most of the time. So if you shoot the hands out in front of your body and just focus on getting the strong of your sword in the center as quickly as possible, then you're more likely to bind with your opponent's sword and have that protect you and then hopefully be in a good position to do one of the follow-ups that we'll talk about next week. Cool. Um, Johanna, how would you think mm. about executing this? Okay, um, if we if we teach it to to newbies, um, we usually do it as a defense or counter against well diagonal um, overhaul or maybe a vertical overhaul. Um, but our idea is to to start in from tag and at the beginning just to move one sword into a kind of left ox position to to get the student to realize um, what the, the Zwerchau as a defensive action is supposed to do. And only afterwards do we kind of hmm, make sure that the, that the Zwerchau is um, cleanly executed as a horizontal um, attack. But in the beginning, it's usually just a going into the left ox position while hitting the other person and only if that's understood do we have a more or a proper look into the horizontal action uh michael my pet peeve about the tverhow is what i'm going to express here because i broadly agree with what he was saying um in terms of how i how i perform it but the is the plane of attack, which used to be dogmatically taught as it's a horizontal strike, and I think and I think that's based on the bad translations that we've discussed, um, and that horizontal is generally the least advantageous angle you can throw it at. So I generally try to give mine some angle. In in you in Joachim Meyer, he seems to present the Tverhau as a rising cut, um, sort of like a flugelhau. Whereas it can also, as a, as a slightly descending cut, so a short edge overhaul, 
with a shallow angle, it also often seems to produce better binds as a parry than simply trying to sweep across with your sword parallel to the ground. Um, so that's something that's what I would contribute to the conversation that the angle of attack is fairly forgiving since the main idea of it is that you're going across and not that you're hitting a particular um, compass angle, but that trying to keep it perfectly flat is often counterproductive and makes it makes it less effective. If you're liking the athwart sort of translation or concept, um, then cutting downwards tends to mean you cross as much directly across the path. You end up with a, a very 90 degree sort of action. Well, it depends how mm. your opponent is cutting in, doesn't it? It does, yeah. But assuming they're cutting moderately with a bit of diagonal, then coming slightly down gives you that kind of squaring off against it sort of thing. Yes. So, so is against, that... against a perfectly vertical cut, then a horizontal cut might be good. Yes, which is what I was about to say. Is our assumption that this should be done against, or is the assumption that we're doing this against a diagonal cut true because of what the text says? Yeah, let, let's take a moment just to look at the setup in the text. So the, the gloss is quite clear that, at least initially, you're doing this the against... The disagree here, actually, um, which is an interesting thing to talk about in that, well, Ringek doesn't give us a setup, and Yudlev has about three times as much text in the setup as Danzig has. So they're not, there's not a consistent theory of what the setup here is. I think that Yudlev is giving the best answer. Um, Yudlev and Nikolaus has the same text. But people who follow Danzig are going to end up with a slightly different setup. Okay, so it's, it's not dogmatically against Hyvon Turg. Let's so let's let's focus on um, on Danzig and Lev, since there's not really any setup in Ringek then. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that Danzig um, has you set yourself up and prepare to deliver the Tverhau before it describes what your opponent is doing, whereas in Lev it sets it up very clearly as a response to your opponent's setup, um, to the point that there's a phrase set your left foot forward and hold your sword on your right shoulder that appears in a different place in each class um, relative to the description of what your opponent is doing. So Danzig says to do that, and then if he stands against you and holds his sword over his head, then you continue on with the Tver. Whereas Lev says that when you come toward him, if he stands against you and holds his sword over his head um, and waits for you, then notice when you come near him, and then set your left foot forward, hold your sword in your right shoulder. And then if he steps towards you and threatens to strike you, um, then you actually begin your strike. So it's very much a, a sort of knock rising situation that's not really present in the Danzig description. So let's go with just the opponent's um, position right now, because it says for both of them, it, it consistently says in the guard from the day with his you know, outstretched arms or up extended arms high over the head. And then it says if he hews down upon you. So mm -hmm. a lot of times in the setup, they'll, he'll, he'll specify that he's hewing from his right side. And we don't get that here. So it's, you know, it's not explicitly a, 
a um, diagonal cut. But it, but then again, it does say all cuts that are hewn from above down. So presumably, it could work against anything that's that's cut from above. So there's there's two interesting things there to highlight as well um, in the guard, which is that there's no mention of what you do you're, that he might have the sword on his shoulder, um, which is often how I see this technique taught, um, because the shoulder of Umtag is Hima's favorite guard. But actually, in no Lichnar text is there a description of the Tverhau being used to counter the guard on the shoulder. Um, it's always Umtag over the head. Whereas you are specifically described as holding your sword on your shoulder and in lev specifically with the flat on your shoulder against an opponent standing in high vomtag. So it's a, a different setup than I typically see when this play is described or when this play is being demonstrated. So do you think it doesn't work at all against someone cutting from the shoulder? I do think it's a lot more difficult to make working against someone cutting from the shoulder because there's less space to get under, essentially would be my, right. my main I, piece I of input there. I see the application of this as sort of protecting the top of your head, whereas cuts coming from the shoulder are often not threatening the top of your head. So it's you can't, like T said, get underneath something that's aiming at your neck as easily as you can, something that's dropping down on top of you. So I think this is the wrong tool for that. Practice your squats. You can definitely get under. Hmm. I would probably do a krimpow um, as my default action against somebody with their sword on their shoulder. So here's what I'm here's what I'm thinking, and this gets back to the uh, whole angles thing that we're talking about with the angles of the Tsverhau. If they're cutting, so say that they they're cutting at a 45 degree from their right shoulder, which some people do. If you want to be athwart or you know crosswise of his cut, then you also you have to throw your Tsverhau at a 45 degree angle. Then you'll be at a 90 degree angle with him. And at that point, like, we're getting into the territory of, is that really still even a Tsverhau? I would say, depending on how you use it, yes, it could be. But then from there, you go to, is a Tsverhau really the right tool, like like, um, like you said before, Michael, at that point? Yeah, so I see the Tver as being primarily against sort of steeper cuts coming from up higher. And against the shoulder, I mean, I've never successfully done that to somewhat inspiring. And I have a height advantage, quote unquote, with the Tverhau. Um, it's not, I mean, I, I, I think I've done it and not died. But as far as doing the clean action being described, it seems like it really wants a higher cut. Yeah. So as far as, are we going to talk about making it work in sparring now then? Because yeah. that's a big, okay. So that's a big deal. So this is the the Tverhau against a cut from above is the play that everybody thinks that they understand, but very few can actually do in sparring. Go, going along with what you just said about being better against a higher cut coming from below, I actually find I am much more successful with it against lefties. Driving it from your right or there? Yes, or you... from my right. Okay. Driving from it from your right, right against a lefty, you cut it into the opening line as they try to countercut you. It works really well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if they're, you know, if they're cutting from their, if if I'm against a righty and they're cutting from their right shoulder, and I'm doing a how against that, um, since they're coming from their right side, 
and like that's the direction that their force is coming. I'm kind of meeting force with force when I try to do a Zerhau against that. And really the best I can hope for in that situation is a strong bind and a parry, which is usually the best I hope for like in general for a Zerhau. But if it's a lefty coming from their left side, I'm kind of going in the same direction as as their force. I'm not I'm not meeting it force on force, so I find I get the actual hit a lot more when I do it, which still I don't get it very often. But it's an interesting yeah. point because the gloss seems to assume that you're going to get into that bind, um, and the next play it carries on from there. So I mean, we could say that the gloss always assumes that no one dies in these plays. Um, but it's interesting that the default situation from this is you're going to end up in that in the Tavera with the strong play. So what that might, might yeah. mean that you're doing it correctly, um, and that that's what always happens and what's supposed to happen. That's possible. Uh, however, you, you reminded me of something interesting, which okay. is there are multiple illustrations that show the different footwork that's described here, where it tells you to spring um, to your right. Um, and what illustrations often show in the sort of Faulkner Wilhelm tradition of illustrating is a step towards your left side and then continuing there with the cut around, um, which is, I don't know where that comes from or if that's a different branch of the Lichtenauer tradition entirely, but it creates a very different situation. Um, and really, I think for me, has had a higher success rate when I played with it than trying to do it the correct way. Well, what I would, I've never practiced it that way, but sitting here thinking about it, what I would imagine is that that becomes really force against force if you're stepping towards their cut. Yeah, but you're getting there faster and you're getting there before when their cut is still beginning and you're catching on your strong. So you're sort of cutting off their cut as opposed to just intercepting it, which sure. if, if you if you actually... I mean, obviously, everything is if you do it right. But when you time this, you're, you're timing it so that as soon as they begin moving, you're coming in to try and catch them at the beginning of their swing. Right. So it's, it's very much a timing issue. The other thing that the step to the left does is it kind of uh, opens up actions around to the other side quite easily. Yeah, so some illustrations show the person completely rotated with facing the same direction as their opponent at the end of the second strike because you've got that much movement going on where you step and turn. Um, and I don't even know, and that's, Faulkner has the most exaggerated one, uh, but it's also in Clooney and elsewhere. I don't even know, it's in, is it, it's in the Glasgow ring deck as well, um, that head body turn. And I don't know a way to get there while springing from the, to the right in the first step. Hmm. So there, I'm, I'm still, I'm thinking about the logistics of this and Usually, so if you're doing a counterattack against somebody cutting in against you, even if it's right at the beginning of their attack, then the cut is is generally going to happen. Your 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 sword is going to land well before your foot lands, because you're probably going to either be not taking a step at all when you throw the cut, or you're going to be doing a ballistic style step. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a, a topic worth going into here at some point, which is, is this a counterattack or an attack on prep, essentially? Um, are you attacking somebody who's in a guard and stepping forward, getting ready to cut, but hasn't actually committed to a cut yet? Or have they already begun to cut? Well, it's both, right? Yeah, left gives both versions. 
You see both, but definitely which one is the primary kind of thing. Because especially if you're treating it as an attack on prep, the idea that you might have finished your step as well is more plausible. Yeah. I mean, uh, the way I generally think about it is the, the prep version is like the the Fizetson, the Fizetson version for the Fear Fizetson. And then mm-hmm. everything beyond that is variations. Right. This is the clearest example in lab that I know of, is the clearest example of Ringdex first, not Gryson. In a different interplay, um, where it's very much your opponent is pulling back to strike, and you're letting him enter distance and then hitting him before he can actually fall through on his attack. Um, and I think that's the primary application of it. Even though a canny opponent is not going to do that, that's not but necessarily true. No, I do it sometimes, and it works sometimes. You get hit by the Tvarhow when you do. No, you just got to make sure your opponent's afraid of you. Right. You got to make sure your opponent's not going to knock rice in you. They're going to go for a defense instead. It's all It's all the game. That's what it says, game. Perry. Yeah. So you could look at it in a sense as this is your opponent rushing in, or this is you rushing into your opponent with Kron, more or less, when you're doing it on preparation and trying to hit with the short edge, but really just trying to get your sword in, in the parry. I mean, it even refers to it as a parry in the second piece of it. Attack. Um, and if you hit, then you... Oh, this is a place where you're going to translate Fizetson as attack. Yes. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. How convenient is that? <laughs> all right, all right. Um, but I would still say that the Tverhau is very much... The idea is primarily to protect your head. And also, if you can hit your opponent, then you hit your opponent. But worst case scenario, you end up in a bind. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea of springing to the left is definitely interesting, but it is something worth noting that all the glosses are unanimous about springing to the right on this one. Um, and that's a question that I have broadly: is why? Yeah. The other thing I see discussed a lot, um, or perhaps not discussed as much as it should be, is springing well to the right can be done in a lot of different finer angles. Like, is it that you spring well, i.e. you spring a long distance, you go slightly to the right, so you jump at, say, one o'clock and get really close to the opponent? Uh, Anton Kohotovich's article, which I think will accompany the notes to this, shows a a version quite like that. Or is this something where you're going a long way out to the side, which works quite well with the more extended sort of oxy house that some people do? Um, And you can kind of wrap around with the point and maybe try and get it in towards the target? Both of them kind of work as variations, but they lead to quite different interpretations of what the spring well to your right side means or spring well with the right foot against him to his left side sort of phrase means. Yeah. So there's there's kind of a problem with the spring that I've always had with this. So let's assume we're talking about the uh, the one where you're count, they're, they're cutting in and you're counter-cutting and cutting them to the head. So it says uh, spring with the right foot well onto uh, his right side. And in the spring, turn your sword with the his left card. side. I think. Where did you get his right side from? Um, sorry, I'm I'm reading the German right now, translating in my head. So I probably made a mistake. But anyway, so you're jumping well onto your right side. Sorry, so you're jumping well onto your right side. But the the key part is in the jump, turn your sword. So if you're if you're doing a counter cut and you start jumping first, and then you start to do the cut, then you're not really in a position to catch his sword anymore. You're in more of a like a 
like a crump to the hand situation where you're, you're kind of dodging his cut and and um coming in so I don't. I personally don't really see this working unless you throw your hands out first and then start the 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 step to the side, and then maybe land the hit with the foot after you've already parried the the cut. But doing it like starting the jump first. Now you're going to be a little bit to the right, and they're aiming for your original position. So how are you gonna? How are you gonna like block their cut in that situation? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the way I square both of these, and especially the sort of the idea that you might do this against the guard or against the cut, um, is essentially by seeing it as a matter of when I get to a particular distance, I'm going to load up and throw this action. So as I'm advancing, this is a theory I've talked about, or a, a structure I've talked about a few times on this podcast now. But as I'm taking steps forward, I go through you go through a series of range bands, each of which works with a different sort of technique. And you start with a very wide range where Zorn works well, then you come to a slightly closer range where Krimp works well. And then if you're taking a step forward from that, you're coming to the range where Tver is going to work well. And so while you take that step, you can prepare your Tver how. And if they begin to cut against you, you spring into the step. And if they don't, as you finish the step, you spring into the, the action anyway. And in both cases, you're basically stepping forward, preparing it, and throwing the, throwing the Tver to try and make a thread at their head cover yourself strongly under your blade and get close under your sword pretty much simultaneously and because the um because you're doing it sort of on your own timing you have a bit more flexibility where if they cut you'll catch it and if they won't cut you'll probably still catch you'll still catch their potential afterblow kind of action there's less of a i'm reacting to the specific beginning of their cut and more i'm closing distance i make this action as i close distance and whether they began to cut or not my action will work if the distinction makes sense yeah and yeah i i i i get what you mean and i kind of do it a similar way is you know when you're at tverhal distance it's kind of uncomfortably close so there's a chance that as soon as you enter that distance your opponent might just immediately throw a cut because they're uncomfortable. And whether they throw that cut or not, you do the Tverhau and Yeah. Is that kind of what you were saying? Exactly, yeah. You're like you're you're coming to a very close distance and as you take the step forward, you load up for it. As soon as you're ready to move, you make the cut. And if they throw or not, you're just doing the same thing pretty much. Right. Um you pretty much move your hands as soon as you see them moving or as soon as you're going to hit otherwise. Makes sense. I'm thinking about it, and I, I don't think I even attempt this Twitter how as a first action anymore. I only ever go for it from a bind. Hmm. Well, that's where it really shines, which we'll get into yeah. later. Shall we? Shall we get into it now? Oh no! Um, first of all, I want to have my rant about. So, thumb comes. Thumb comes under. Oh, okay. So you're doing the Tverhau and your thumb is under the blade. Now, I learned this and I've taught this and everything else as the pad of your thumb is pushing into the shilt and it's forming a nice little arch which gives you mechanical advantage to push against a bind. But the illustrations don't show it and I don't think the text especially supports that interpretation. 
And certainly I've seen guys who are, are really good at throwing to their house where the thumb's just next to the shilt underneath. And that's the interpretation that I'm, uh, I'm favoring these days. So I think that, so if you have the thumb, just, this is going to be hard to describe. It would be much better if, if you could see what I'm doing, because I'm doing something with my thumb. But if your thumb <laughs> is just touching the shilt and you're kind of gripping with your fingers and your palm is not touching the, like the handle of your sword, I think that's actually kind of dangerous to your hand because if you take a full force, like from, from the top hit, pretty much the entire force is going into your thumb and pushing your thumb back. So um, I think that that is probably not the best way to do it. Now, if you have your... The way I do it is I have my palm on the handle. So the thumb is, is still on the shilt, but it, but like the, the thumbprint is not really pressing hard on the shilt. Yeah. It's just kind of there. And the palm of my, my hand is like on the bottom of the handle. So when an impact hits, the the force goes more into the palm of my hand. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, and I agree with you that certainly when I've I've done this pushing the pad of the thumb into the the shilt thing, stepping away after two days of fencing in a competition, and your thumb really hurts. <laughs> yeah. As far as the existence of thumb grip itself. I, I don't know. Does anybody else want to comment on this? Um, so on the topic of Twitter in general, I normally just teach grabbing the sword from the side, essentially, S instead of focusing on specifically the thumb coming up along the shield or anything. I essentially just have people hold their sword out, turn it by kind of 90 degrees-ish, so that they'd be hitting with the flat if they did a normal cut, and then tell them that that's the hand position, and they just want to hold it like that when they do the Twitter. And I don't really mind if even you're kind of hammer gripping it and your thumb's coming up the side or normally, or if your thumbs are kind of pointing along the flat of the sword a bit. It needs to be supported by the big meaty bits of your palm, not by your thumb, because your thumb's small and lever doesn't cope well with leverage. And you could do pretty much the same thing for actions like shield and crump. Just grab the sword from the side and move on with your life, essentially. Right. So on the topic of the thumb grip, it comes up in Messer quite a bit. You see it in Lukutner's illustrations. And with a messer, it is uh, pretty important in order to get the right edge alignment. To you, uh, People often use their thumb to actually flip the sword a little bit, even though you don't need to use your thumb for that. But getting that there is a good indication that you have the blade in the right position. Once you learn the position, you probably don't need to have your thumb there anymore. And we certainly see very, very few instances in artwork um, in, in fencing manuals that are depicting a sword with the thumb popped up. And you could argue that, that like the couple that exist are not showing the Tverha thumb grip even. So it may not be a thing that actually exists in the artwork, but it is a useful mechanical tool to teach someone the right blade position. Otherwise, getting the edge alignment can sometimes get wonky with the Tverha. If you don't know, that's how you need to hold your sword. I think the Clooney shows something that's kind of similar to what we think of as a thumb grip, but it's still not 100% the same. Clooney is what I was thinking of. Maybe there's one of the few examples. Especially Probably for... Yeah, especially for the shield how is is where... Because um, when we get to the shield how, they don't say anything about the thumb at all. And the Goliath picture like shows 
a crazy twisted wrist position that I would never recommend anybody use. Yeah, well, maybe that's right. Who knows? We'll get to that one. Anyway, it's a good thing. The main way I interpret the so the thumb comes under advice here is just that it's telling you that the line of the cut is kind of horizontal-ish. Like you want the cut to be coming relatively horizontal, maybe a bit up, maybe a bit down, but kind of across. And you want it to be up above so that your your hand is coming up to it from below and your thumb is therefore underneath the sword. Those are the the key mechanical components I treat as being what that's what's implied by that, not something very specific about the position of the sword uh, or the position of the thumb on the sword. Yeah, I agree with that. These are just some some kind of basic cues for a couple of core bits of the the mechanic. Um, cool. So now we can uh, I, my rant section's over. It and just we can occurred move on to me. To... No, Sorry. my rant section's not over. Go ahead, Michael. Um, I was I wanted to point out that the thumb grip, if we use it to teach a position, it just I just remembered that you could construe. Lev's instruction to hold the sword with the flat on your shoulder as an alternative way of getting into the right hand position. Yeah, I was actually just about to mention that next. If you're holding, like I said, the way I actually teach people the hand position I want them to use for Traer is by just having them hold the sword out at a long point and then turning the sword physically in their hands until it's sideways. And if they fold back up to something kind of like Tug from there, they'll have, they'll have the sword with the flat on their shoulder. Hmm. Um, so in that case, you don't need to do a thumb grip to be getting to even be assured that you have the right position, it's just a useful reminder sometimes. Um, but one, but I think that could be why Lev has that strange instruction. Is just is a way, a sort of sideways way of indicating that this is where you turn your sword so that you're, it's aligned for a tarhelm. Yeah, and it also um, it's still a position that works well for things like crumps. So if you get caught while you're doing the turn, you can still do a number of other actions. You just can't really do normal strike cuts. Right, short edge cuts all pretty much can work from there. Yeah, and also long edge crump, just in a kind of any any sort of crossed sideways grip cut works basically. What do you guys right. think? What do you guys think about um, doing its fair how into a thrust? It's implied in three two seven a. I seem to recall. Yes. Hmm. Well, I maybe. think that I'm totally against it. What you could read three two seven a is talking about the mutarin. It's not specific enough. You could. That's an interesting idea. I think you're going to be hard pressed to end up in a a bind with your point online that hasn't hit them. The most natural way you're going to get that bind is by doing it at a longer distance. I think. And yeah. at that distance, you end up with a much shallower angle on their potential cut, so they're much more likely to come over and hit your hands. One of the things in Anton's article um, is the observation that the physically closer you are to the other person, the more protected your hands are behind your cross and shield, um, because the more the broader the angle that the two swords form is. So if you're far enough away to bring your point in line, you're kind of risking their sword coming over and hitting you anyway. That and they can just drop their sword on your weak and stab you. Yeah. And also you have a big, big risk of overswinging. Yeah. The only time I could see the thrust might be happening organically and being feasible is if you do the attack on preparation and your opponent flinches backwards, um, then you might end up with your point forward having not hit anything before you intercept his sword. And then you can try and chase him with the point. Um, so sort of... 
like other shootings of the point where you're not yeah. actually making contact, but you but your point is still in in presence. I think they say, is that right? Yeah, that could yeah. work. Yeah. But how often has that ever happened to me? Maybe never. Well, I think if that happens, then you've missed your window, the window of timing that you were looking for, which would be while they're stepping in. Because while they're stepping in, it gives you a moment where they're not, they're not capable of easily stepping back. Fancy footwork manipulation. I like it. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it's you know that's that's a difficult uh, timing to hit, and it's very conceivable that you could miss it and be throwing a cut against a retreating opponent. Which at that point, you, you kind of go on the defensive, and it's kind of your opponent's initiative. But yeah, it's possible. That's exactly the time when you get hit in the hands. If you're right, yeah. Or, or, yeah, or they fall on top of your point and stab you. Or they cut around to the other side, and yeah. There's tons of nasty stuff. <laughs> that is definitely the point where I like hitting people in the, in the forearm. Yeah, that's that's the point where I uh, where I drop my hands and go and like block the left side, so they can't hit me in the forearms. But the, the Tver followed by the Atzanzatim is the only thing I could conceive of where the thrust would make sense. Yeah, cool, good, cool, 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 cool. So, why is the Tver how overpowered in fencing and? the correct way to win a longsword competition is to spin to win and just throw out Fairhouse. <laughs> because Nordic Rules reward had not hedgehog disproportionately? That's actually pretty much the answer. Oh, that was a joke. Yeah, but it's legitimately true too. Um, the, the first thing to emphasize, which is possibly not obvious from the discussion we've been having so far, is that actually just Twer from one side to the other and back um, in the kind of classic uh, copter helicopter form is not something in any of the glosses. There's a version where you cut between high and low openings. Uh, and there's some versions where you do cuts to the other side with pushes with the cross guard and similar. But you typically don't just have the machine gun to both sides and try and hit as many as you can. Action. That could be what the double failure is is invoking. That's the, that's the closest I can think of. Perhaps. And we'll um, get there. But it's pretty niche is my point at best. I think with the with the double failure though, they don't want you to they want you to throw in um like uh variations. They don't want you to just So copter. I yeah, I think that's the idea behind the uh the double failure is like don't just copter throw in throw in variations to throw off your opponent. Like throw in a uh duplerin or throw in a uh a failure. Yeah, copter <laughs> copter a couple of times and then do something else. Um Yeah. Yeah. But in the modern longsword meta, um, Nordic scoring is actually a major factor for it, I think, um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, most Nordic scoring, Nordic style scoring scores the head and thrusts the body very highly, but cuts the body and cuts the arms are scored lower. And because it's fully weighted after blows, if you hit someone in the head, then the worst possible outcome for you from the exchange is zero points. If you're at close range with somebody, which is obviously the correct range to do it fair anyway, then the it's very hard for them to get a thrust into your body. There's just physically it's difficult to get enough space to bring the point in line. And the tear because your hands are up by your head and in front of your head kind of um, makes it quite hard for them to actually make a head hit as opposed to hitting it making a hand hit. So it becomes a very effective uh, movement in that rule set. And that's a very common rule set across HEMA. 
or variations of that rule set are very common across HEMA. Yeah. And using your arms to shield your head is a time-honored tradition in historical factual style fencing. So it's hmm. not it's not historically incorrect, but it's also not what the gloss is talking about. Yes, exactly. You um, often see in Dusak pictures the person holding both arms on the outside of their head in a variety of guards, specifically to avoid those headshots. Yeah. I think I think a big reason that it's used so much is because it's not punished very much. So yeah, there's well, very, there's very little risk in actually doing it. Under Nordic style scoring, the punishments aren't typically super effective. Yeah, but it's not Nordic style scoring is not the only time Terracopter yeah. is used. But it's prevalent, I mean, the... it's prevalent enough to encourage the technique across most of HEMA. It works pretty well. And a lot of the time, the punishments aren't super effective. They're either difficult to see from judges, or they can't get called as hand hits and don't get scored particularly well. Um, actions uh, like that. I mean, what are the, the textbook responses to being closer than somebody just throwing a Terracopter? You've got the slicing into the hands. Yeah. That uh, tends to get you terrible scoring in most places. Yeah. The judges even see it. Yeah, that You've got very trying well. to get a, your own how underneath their how, and then you just have a helicopter off. Good luck ever getting a judge to see that one, by the way. Um, and and I, you've that got... That happened at least once at Long Point, and the judges couldn't figure out if it, if it had landed or not because it was too yeah. tight. I, I did that. Really well. I did that action three times in a row to a guy at Dutch Lions Cup and got scored for none of them. Then I stopped doing it. Because it, 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 got... it, like, it, it looks like it could have been parried. Like it's hard to see which terror is landing and which one isn't to that, especially yeah. if you're 10 feet away. Sorry, three meters. <laughs> <laughs> Get away out of here with your freedom units. Two fathoms. <laughs> um, and you've, you've also got uh, Ring and Amschwert when their hands are high and you're close in, which is uh, pretty banned. Well. There's there, there's the secret bonus counter to the Tverhau, which is to shove your elbow between their arms, um, which actually is probably better than most of the textbook ones. You could try and wedge your point into, in between their arms at their mask, and that might work. They'll probably still hit you, and you'll get your sword you're broken. Too, you're too close to do that. <laughs> so that, like, if, you're, yeah. if you're at a distance, if you're at a distance where you, you can stab, and they're doing a Tverhopter, then you have a pretty big advantage. It could obviously be a backward step thrust. I mean, come on, what do you think is happening here? No, that's a, well, I mean, They're that's one of the main things. Right. You just, yeah, you just uh, parry a bunch of their cuts and step back and then do whatever you yeah. want. And I've but, got to yeah, give a, a big shout out now to John from Auckland Sword and Shield, who I was fencing uh, Thursday night, who was tired and just fell back on snipes and thercopters, and it was brilliant defense against because like this is a lot of the time what you actually come up against in competition and it reminded me of uh, a shout out to also Wukash Dubrovsky who's really good at going from like a, a sword up central position to just a flurry of cuts coming round and it was a nice test to be able to sit in that pocket and try and parry as many of them as possible while <laughs> getting hit around the head. Yeah, that's one of that's one of my favorite things to do against the Sphericopter is just block all of them. 
Because <laughs> if it is a straight, if they're just doing a straight up spherecopter, it's really easy to just block every single one of them. And and then you get a big combo breaker shout out. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> now, I if they're throwing in variations, which you're supposed to do, then it's it becomes a lot more difficult to block all of them. Yeah, but that's also more difficult to do. I remember fencing Mike here once, uh, and he I tried to cut around with a Tverhow, and he just stabbed me in the face, so I folded his sword in half with my forearms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's all right. I had a bendy, bendy sword back then. <laughs> How much longer did it take for that thing to break? Like two months? Yeah, but I, I think I only had a lifespan of like eight months. There's That's a reason right. that the... Shout out to the Cardiff boys. Thank you for selling me the bendiest sword in the universe. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, is there anything else that we want to say about the crimp pound? Ah, sorry. Yes, the crimp pound. <laughs> no, don't bring us back <laughs> to that one. We finished. I need, a, I, I need a coffee. All right, uh, T, I'm going to pick on you. When is a shield how or a crimp how a twer how? Uh, so that comes back to that's an interesting question um, would be the short answer um, my answer to it is based on this idea I was referencing earlier when talking about the gross mechanic of a shortened versus an extended action generally for me shield and crimp are relatively extended actions so the sword is out in front of the center of the body um, and the body like the arms are rotating as part of the action the, the shoulders are moving down that sort of stuff uh, whereas Tver is very much close to the body and driven pretty much solely by a turn of the core. You can kind of do a very short range shield with a, using the turn of your core to power a kind of hooking action with the backhand, which I know Jake Norwood has done some stuff with. There are mechanics like that available. But in general for me, it's a matter of distance. Shield and Krump use extended structures and Tver uses a shortened structure. I've just had an epiphany the the twer, the shield and the crimp are the three times that we're told to spring out of distance, aren't they? Crimp, you're told to spring. Shaitel, you're sometimes told to spring. spring. Okay, all right, I'll shut up. Shield, you're usually not. I think only once are you told to spring in the shield. Lev told okay. you to spring. We've been over this before, didn't we? That, that in the shield versus long point, you spring as well? No, in the shield versus long point, you step forth. You step forward, ah, suit tread. That's right. Yeah. Um, but in, in so, Lev, in the main attack, you spring forward, which doesn't work. Yeah. But go on. <laughs> it, to me, the difference between the Tver and the Schiller is primarily, it's not exactly angle, because when I say angle, it sounds like it's something that's measurable. But to me, it's more that the Schiller is dropping and the Tver is moving across. Which you could generalize to like above forty-five or below forty-five, but that's not how I think of it. But that well, a shield is like downward. With a downwards action, you get sort of there's the the downwards pull of the arms becomes a component of the cut in a way it doesn't with a mostly a cross action. It's that kind of mechanical thing which I'm getting at with the extension versus sort of collection okay. compacted idea. Yeah, but yeah. So to me, the difference is primarily the sort of vector of movement is either it's falling on top of your opponent, either their you know shoulder or their sword or whatever's happening where you're setting up a thrust is a shield how and it has a very downward movement. And that and I don't I don't know that it has to be extended or contracted in either case. Whereas it's fair I'm crossing my body and a shield how doesn't cross my body like that. 
And there's probably some weird edge case where I wouldn't be able to really define which one is which. Like if you do a perfect 45 degree short edge cut or something, but I've never done or seen that. So it hasn't come up. Well, Wittgenstein says language only has meaning through use. So, <laughs> but yeah, so then there's a, there's a feeling, a, a difference of how the two cuts sort of feel and perform that's hard to perfectly capture in words. Cool. Shields were more extended too. It can Were be. You? It doesn't have to be. Eh, okay. We'll talk about that when we get to it. Hmm. Yeah. Does anybody have anything else to add? Shall we yes. wrap up? Go ahead, Steve. Sorry, 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 Mike. Confident. But Powerful. it's 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 uh yeah it's it's annoying for me too because I'm gonna have to edit all this later and super long. <laughs> but anyway, I want to real quick talk about high fumtog, over the head fumtog which we kind of glossed over earlier. Uh, yeah. So the, the, there's a thing with um, how people use high from tog in our modern fencing game. And I think it's, it's partly the reason why, you know, it's fair how against it never really um, is either seen or effective. So there's, there's three issues with, with high from tog first, well, well, people don't use it very often, and when they do, there's three issues with it. First, it, whether consciously or subconsciously, when you raise your sword over your head like that, it raises your center of balance. So people become less likely to to move their feet as much or like jump in for a uh, for a first attack, and they might not even know why, but they're just not comfortable doing it, so they just end up standing in high from tog and waiting for their opponent to come. And as soon as their opponent steps in, they do an all muscle swing straight down to the ground. And that's not really something that you can properly do. It's fair. How against that's something that you'd rather just, you know, avoid and do something else. Exactly. Do like a knock rising against it. Number two is when people start over their head, they end up, a lot of times um, not bringing their arms down as much as they would for a normal cut. So they kind of uh, break their wrist structure and end in this kind of extended, you know, upward angled position with their arms. And if you do, it's fair how against that you're going to, you have a risk of getting hit in the hands because of the angle of their blade. And you're also more likely to hit their arms than you are to hit their head. And the third issue was, um, I forget what the third one was, but the the first two are, you know. Oh, they, they tend to do, rather than just Hulk smash, a lot of the time you'll go to high from tag and then go, huh, they think I'm going to attack directly and start doing weird feints all around. That's exactly what the third one was mike thank you <laughs> yeah people think they're going to be clever and go for like an unterhau or something or like a low hit and then obviously like your it's fair how's not going to work against that you're going to double. double city yeah yeah thank you how'd you know did you read my mind uh yes it's what all good fences do we just <laughs> hear, hear a subject and instantly bam i know that he's gonna do a feint yeah so this is this is kind of a um a request to the to the community to please train 
high from tog and try to get better at using it <laughs> so so we can make these uh house work cool yeah. i wonder if the, if the rising tverhow might work better against that rising cut admire no features. like um the problem is that basically they're dropping um uh dropping the whole structure and cutting up from below there's no cover with a tver at all none of them yeah. You get cut up under the arms. I, it's happened to me before. I have it on video of me fencing someone where it happened somewhere. Yeah, right. you're, you're just going to get doubled if that happens. Pretty much. The other, uh, well, I guess we won't mention more stuff. Um, but the, one of the that you can use right of way to solve all of these fencing problems. You can actually, and it solves the <laughs> Twer helicopter too. Um, uh, but on a serious <laughs> note, right away? no. Um, in most right-of-way rule sets, uh, Turnhow, for example, uh, solve this pretty efficiently. If you've attacked and just been parried and you cut round, when they try and repost, their cut will win and your cut won't. So you can do a Turnhow, but you can only do it when they are off balance and unable to, um, unable to try and count, try and repost off their parry. Um, then you can cut around safely. Uh, but you have to create a situation where they physically can't repost as opposed to just trying to beat them with speed. And it massively, it's still a very effective technique. It still comes up a lot, but it's way less overrepresented, especially in the classic helicopter of death mode. Isn't there a French guy who's argued that Lichtenauer was designed for a right of way rules? That is the position of the Slovaks, too. That's a gross misinterpretation. <laughs> but yes, also, they think that Borenak is right of way. Um, but it legitimately works for this, um, and it does solve this problem pretty efficiently. Because if you just do the ice closed continuation, you can't just throwing the first cut and instantly snapping around for the second cut is a very, very suboptimal action um, unless you have put the opponent off balance so that they can't uh, they can't repost with their own action. It is interesting, isn't it? how a lot of these seem to have an implied requirement that your opponent wants to be in the bind that is kind of hard to justify, yeah. short of some uh, artificial constraint. Or just a social structure. Um, you see the same. Yeah. There was a social structure in modern fencing around playing from blade engagement for a long time. If you don't, if yep. you refuse to bind like that, you're just a jerk, and everyone knows it. So you have to. I was reading Epe 2.5 um, uh, recently, and there was an anecdote in the end of it from Johann Harmenberg about fencing the guy who was like the world Epe champion in 1935. And he went to fence the guy and just stabbed him. And the guy was like, no, no, the way you fence is you start in the bind and you go from there. And Johann was <laughs> like, oh, okay, and started from that and just couldn't hit the guy anymore. <laughs> and obviously there's nothing in the rules of Epe saying you have to start from blade engagement, but it's a really interesting view into like how culture changed in 50 years. Yeah. Sweet. All right, and on that bombshell, we're going to wrap up. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, this has been Fencing by the Book. I've been your host, Michael Smoridge, and joining me today have been our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chittister, Stephen Cheney, and T. Q. In the next episode, we'll be covering more Tver Copters. <laughs>